Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have an unquestionable treat for you, a divergence from the COVID craziness to escape into the investigation of what does it mean to be healthy at the most foundational level and examining the, the answer to that question by exploring culture, the, one of the few cultures in the world that are actually doing what our ancient ancestors did. So you're going to love this because I know I sure am. And that we're going to be talking with Dr. Paul Saladino, who of course is uh, really most well known for his bringing us information about adopting more animal foods into our diet. And, you know, he wrote the book, the carnivore code. So, and he's got a whole site that is focused on that. And I'm just so looking forward to this uh, dialogue and, and helping him explain what occurred on his recent trip to Africa to visit the Hunza tribe. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. It is always an honor to be with you, my friend. Um, yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. All right, so let's let's start with you know why did you go out there? What what's the backstory? And then there, there's so much to go into to really help us uh, get some deep insights into what it means to be healthy. You know, I think that the my interest in the Hadza probably began when I was. 10 or 12 years old watching Indiana Jones movies. And you see this guy traveling around the world to these faraway tribes and they're, they're living so much differently than we live. And you know he's mainly going to the Amazon to search for these, these treasures. But this idea of traveling around the world and seeing these different cultures, I think is something that we all understand. And I felt a little bit like Indiana Jones going to Africa this time. And so you know, I had to grow my beard to be an adventurer and I had to get my full brim hat and, and wear, my, wear my Indiana Jones, you know, like clothes and stuff. But for me, this was my own search for treasure. But the treasure that I look for is not a gold statuette like Indiana Jones. The treasure that both you and I ha are looking for is what is, we're almost like Ponce de Leon. We're almost looking for the fountain of youth, but we're, we're looking for the fountain of health. Mm -hmm. what, are the, what are the key things that, we might learn from a culture like the Hadza, who as you appropriately correctly say, are probably the best living representation or one of the best living representations of the way that humans have been living for tens of thousands, if not millions of years. What can we learn from them about how we might live as humans in 2021 in Western society to have this, this sort of magical treasure of youth and health? And, in all of my curiosities and investigations, writing the carnivore code and, and thinking about this, tribes like the Hadza have come up over and over and over. And I'm, really, this is the key. There's only two or three tribes of true hunter-gatherers left on the planet. There are probably less than a thousand of these individuals. And they're, the Hadza are perhaps the best well-known 
The other tribe that's commonly talked about is the Ikung. And I'm not going to pronounce that right because it has a, a click in it. They have a click. It's the Kong tribe in Botswana and South Africa. And there are a few tribes in the Amazon and Central South America. But these African tribes are fascinating because they are truly living a hunter-gatherer life amidst the encroachment of Western society. There's no question they know about humans and that are living a Westernized life, but they have prescience. They are choosing to forego that. They want to keep living a hunter-gatherer life. And I wanted to go to Africa to do my Indiana Jones exploration and to go hunt and live with these people for as long as I could to see how they lived. And it was such an amazing experience. All right. Well, we're interested in finding more about that, of course. And I just wanted to give a little backstory because I neglected to mention in the introduction is that your journey was so serendipitous because you, you, you are now residing in Austin and you left right before the worst winter like ever hit Austin. And so you escaped that craziness and got to be in Africa. Yeah, it was, it was fortuitous that I could be in Africa while Austin got hit with a crazy storm. And we can tell that story later on in the podcast. But, um, you know, I see the Hadza as a time machine. They're like a time capsule. Another movie that I loved growing up was back to the future. And so I really felt like this was my best shot at the DeLorean. For anyone who hasn't seen the movie, the DeLorean is the time machine. It's a car that Doc Brown makes in, in Back to the Future. And they, put, they have to use you know, special radioactive isotopes with you know, 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. <laughs> and then in later episodes of the Back to the Future, they use a blender and they can use banana peels and stuff to fuel the DeLorean, but they can go back in time. And I even wrote about this in the Carnivore Code. I didn't know that I was going to go to Africa at that time, but in the Carnivore Code, in my book about animal-based eating and the importance of animal foods eaten nose to tail, I said, I wish I had a time machine. And it became clear you know, later on, a, a year later or so, now that I've gone on this trip, that, that we do have a time machine, but it's quickly vanishing. The doors of the time machine are quickly closing. And so I wanted to go to Africa to, to get in the time machine and see how these hunter-gatherers are living. And it was, it was really cool. But, you know, on my social media, people have asked questions like, what is it about the Hadza that makes them so special? Do they live to be 200 years old? Or why did you go all this way to see them? And this is a really important question. And the simple answer is they do not suffer chronic disease like mm. we do in Western society. And that alone makes them infinitely fascinating to me. And by chronic disease, I mean many things. They do not suffer cancers like we suffer cancers. They do not suffer autoimmune disease, which as you know, is a huge spectrum uh, of disease. And they do not suffer depression, mental illness, uh, skin issues. These things don't happen in hunter-gatherer societies. They do not suffer dementia anywhere near the rates that we do. They age with grace. This is called squaring of the morbidity curve. This is something that I had a conversation with your friend James Clement about when he came on my podcast, that these hunter-gatherer societies, and again, they're quickly vanishing from the earth. If you look at a graph of their vitality across the lifespan, it essentially is flat and then drops off very quickly at the end. It's like a square, right? Squaring of the morbidity curve. And then they, they, they lose their, their vitality within the last few weeks of life. But until they're 70 or 80 years old, they are vital individuals. And I'll tell some great stories about what I saw in Tanzania with, you know, elderly, quote unquote, Hadza who were so vital and so spry. But if we look at Western society, 
it's a completely different curve. And it's like a, it's like a ramp. It's like a skate ramp that goes straight down. We lose vitality consistently throughout our life. It just drops off gradually so that somebody that's 40 is usually less vital than somebody that's 30 and 50 and 60 and 70 and down the line. But this doesn't happen in these societies primarily because they don't suffer chronic disease. They don't really have heart attacks. They don't really have strokes. And so for me as a doctor, I thought, wait a minute, why why wasn't I told about this in medical school? There are people living on this earth and they're living differently than we do in Western society who don't really get the diseases that we get to the same extent. Shouldn't we go study them and understand this and and try and peek into into the magical realm here and get in the time machine and say, why, why don't they have this? So that, that's really why I went. I hope that gives people some context. Yeah, that's great. So uh, thank you for providing us that context. And why don't you start sharing what some of the observations you uh, witnessed? Yeah, so the, the, main, the first thing that I wanted to discover about them was I really wanted to see their diet firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, I had read about their diet. There are many studies published about the Hadza diet. And I have quoted these studies at length in the past. And I'll share, as long as I can share my screen, I can pull up one of these studies that I had quoted in the past about the Hadza diet. And I wanted to go and see if their diet was as documented by other people. So I was curious, how much do they hunt? How many plant foods do they eat? Do they value plant foods? Do they value animal foods? What is the relative value of foods in their diet? So the first thing I wanted to discover was how do these hunter-gatherers who are essentially a time capsule for human evolution, this human history, how do they eat, what do they prioritize, and how does it affect their health? And so this is the study that I've quoted in the past, which I've found very fascinating. The title of the study is Tubers as Fallback Foods and Their Impact on Hadza Hunter-Gatherers. And if you look at the study, it's fascinating. It was done um, many years ago, I think it's at least 20 or 30 years old, this study, uh, I guess it was 2008. So it's not as old mm-hmm. as I thought it's yeah. 12 years old, they're, they're- but they, they stayed with the Hadza for a number of months and they looked at the, the tubers they ate. They looked at the berries they ate. They looked at the meat they ate and they looked at the honey they ate. And you can see that on this list, these are essentially the foods according to this article that were eaten by the Hadza. Now, There's some foods that are notably missing from this this list that we colloquially might think of as, quote, healthy in Western society. Anyone who's familiar with my work will understand that I'm not really a fan of things like leafy greens and vegetables, but there are really not many vegetables on this list. This is tubers, berries, meat, baobab, which is a tree that grows in Africa. It's called the tree of life, which has a fruit and honey. The According to this paper, the Hadza don't eat vegetables. And I thought, well, isn't that fascinating? And that supports a hypothesis that I had advanced previously in my work, which was maybe vegetables, meaning the roots, stems, leaves, and seeds of plants are not really that good for humans in the first place. So I wanted to go and see this firsthand. But you can see in this graph that they asked the Hadza men and women to rank how much they liked these foods individually. And you can see both men and women said honey was their favorite food. And we'll, we'll talk about honey because I'm fascinated by honey and some of the unique qualities of raw, essentially unprocessed honey. Um, and then the men said meat was their second favorite food, then baobab, then berries, and tubers were their least favorite food. Now, interestingly, the women ranked meat, baobab, and berries all about the same. 
But then they said tubers were also their least favorite food. So even when they're eating something that sort of resembles a vegetable, and I ate the tubers with the Hadza, so I can tell you what they're actually like, it's the least favorite food of both the men and the women. I thought that was interesting that both the men and the women favor animal foods and honey, something that we wouldn't necessarily think of as a food that we prioritize as Westerners. And as they say later on in this paper, when there is a large kill in camp, the women stop digging for tubers and they prioritize the meat. And so this was really fascinating when I read this paper and I thought, this is a researcher who did his, it's Frank Marlowe, who wrote a whole book about the Hadza. He did his PhD thesis about the Hadza. He stayed with them for, I think, five or 10 years. And I think this is kind of supporting the things that I have hypothesized, that, that meat and organs are the center of the human diet and that tubers, mm, we'll eat them when we, when we need to as survival food, but they don't make up the majority of the diet, right? Now, there are people who have debated this. Richard Rangum is a Harvard anthropologist, and he wrote a book called Catching Fire, which said that, that fire was key to the development of the human brain because it allowed us to access more of these carbohydrates in things like tubers. And I debated that in my book, War Code, because if you look at the time frame, fire has only been around for 500,000 years, but we know that the expansion of the human brain began 2 million years ago, 1.5 million years before we first had fire. So fire really probably can't be the spark that allowed our brains to grow. And if people are not familiar with this, the context here, one of the most fascinating things that I've discovered moving a little bit outside of my, my realm as a physician and more into anthropology and evolutionary biology is that over the last 2 million years, during this era called the Pleistocene, the human brain got much bigger. We really became human in the last 2 million years. Before that, there was Australopithecus and a divergence, sort of a schism of the evolutionary tree with a species called Paranthropus bozii, and then um, Homo habilis and Homo erectus. And that branch point was super fascinating because that was a branch point between meat and plants. This is about 4 million years ago in human evolution. And Paranthropus bozii ate more plants. We can tell this based on stable isotopes, looking at the teeth, and I can show you a paper for this. But Homo habilis and Homo erectus ate more and more meat. We really believe that humans were scavengers, that we saw big kills and we scared off lions. We began eating rotting meat, perhaps leading to the development of a very acidic stomach. And the unique nutrients found in that meat and those organs allowed our brains to grow. Nutrients like choline, carnitine, taurine, B12, K2, essential fatty acids, creatine, which is this hugely important energy currency in the human body that we can make, but when we can get it from meat and organs, vitamin A and the retinoic acid form, the, the hypothesis, the, I think the prevailing, the prevailing thinking now, which is quite compelling in my opinion, is that eating meat and organs made us human. And so the species that chose to eat more plants went excuse, extinct. Excuse me for interrupting, but you left out a real important C, the carnosine, which is so important, yes. especially as we seek to mitigate the damage from uh, excess vegetable oils in our cultures. You know. Absolutely. That, yeah. There's so many important scenes. There's taurine, carnosine, anserine, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, carnitine, and they're all found in meat. And you can tell that they're, they're, they have the C-A-R-N, right? They're carnal, they're in the meat. So these, these are the foods that, these are the nutrients that really spark the development of the human brain that made us human. And so 
isn't it interesting to say to the Hadza when I go, what foods do you treasure? What do you focus on? And what do you not really, you know, what do you eat as a survival food? So I, you know, I, I disagree with Richard Rangham. I don't think it was fire that made us human. It was eating meat first raw off the carcass and then eventually cooked over the fire. So all of these things are kind of coalescing in my mind. And I thought, how cool would this be? This paper suggests that the Hadza diet substantiates many of the things that I have suggested and I wanted to go see them. So I fly to Africa. It's Joe, this flight is so long. It is a 30 hour, <laughs> it is a 30 hour journey. You know, I had one plane flight that was 17 hours. Oh, I was going to ask you what was believe, the longest leg. That's crazy. Yes, believe me, I was wearing compression stockings and putting my feet up at all times and walking around the plane and doing everything I could to stay active and trying to sleep. And, you know, you go, I flew from Austin to Dulles to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And if anyone's ever seen the Indiana Jones movies, they have this awesome picture of the world globe and this plane flying across. So everybody can picture me flying across the world to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And then you get to Kilimanjaro Airport in Tanzania. And as soon as I stepped off the plane, I thought, oh, I've never been to Africa before. I don't know if you've been to Africa, but I thought this place is different. (laughs) <laughs> you can feel it. This place is wild. And, and I'll tell you more of the stories about that. But as soon as you get off the plane in Tanzania at the base of Kilimanjaro, you think, oh, this place is wild. And an interesting aside here. So on my podcast, I had a gentleman named Bill Von Hippel who wrote a book called The Social Leap, which is about how we changed our interactions with other humans, hominids, early in our evolution. And You know, I learned from Bill that human life arose at this exact spot that I had landed in Tanzania. It's called the East African Rift Valley. Mm -hmm. And I got to go to the places where the rift occurred. So there's two lakes, Lake Iasi, E-Y-A-S-I, and Lake Manyara. And both of these lakes are at the edge of East African rifts, meaning essentially four to six million years ago, the land dropped and there was a rift. And you can see there's a couple thousand feet of a of a, I'm not sure what the geological term is, of a geological sort of cliff. And there's a, there's a, a rift valley there. So uh, the hypothesis is that up in the high region were where the primates were. And some of our ancestors, 6 million years ago, long before you know, Homo sapiens, um, the Australopithecines were in the rift valley and they were suddenly faced with new environment and they had to adapt. They were more in the open. The traits they evolved were more upright posture, the ability to see out and the ability to work in groups and the ability to scavenge. But this is the place where our ancestors were essentially, you know, born, quote unquote. So there, it was really cool to be at the East African Rift Valley and think this is where humans evolved. This is the cradle of life. And there are, this is total Indiana Jones stuff. You can tell I get so excited about this. There are, there are you know, there are monuments to this. There's a place called the Old of I Gorge where the skeleton of Lucy was found. And Lucy is the oldest skeleton we have. It's an Australopithecine skeleton that's 4 million years old. It's believed to be the oldest hominid relative. That's the Old Divide Gorge. And there's a place called Latoli. There are these Latoli footprints. And you can see this upright sort of hominid primate intermediate, Australopithecine walking across volcanic ash, leaving footprints that were then preserved for millions of years. So these are the oldest sort of humanoid hominid. And again, it's millions of years ago footprints ever recorded right in this area in Africa. So I step off the plane, I think, oh, this is where we began as humans. How humbling and sort of fascinating is that? And then you also realize this is wild because you hear elephants 
And you think, what? <laughs> There's an elephant here. And as a part of this trip, I did, I went on safari at Lake Manyara and a place called the Ngoro Ngoro Crater. And we're driving around Lake Manyara and you see giraffe and elephants and wildebeest or water buffalo. And you think, oh, wow, this is a buffet for early humans. These are some big animals that would provide a lot of food. And they're, they're migratory. And then we went to a magical place, Joe, called the Ngoro Ngoro Crater. It's N-G-O-R-O, N-G-O-R-O. And this is the closest thing that I've ever seen to a colloquial Garden of Eden. It is a, <clears throat> it's a caldera. It's an extinct volcanic crater with walls all around. The diameter is 20 kilometers. And the walls all around are 1,000 to 2,000 feet. So you're in this crater. And I have never seen such a collection of animal life in my life. There were herds of hundreds of zebra next to hundreds of wildebeest with 10 elephants around. And then we saw a rhinoceros, which is very rare. And then we saw elephants lounging, you know, and then we saw lions, a pride of lions on the side of the road. And then you see hyena and jackal and Thompson gazelles and eland, which are big gazelles. And you think, our ancestors had a lot of food to hunt. It is everywhere, Joe. It was everywhere in Ngoro, and Ngoro Ngoro is preserved. It was everywhere. They were literally a buffet for us, essentially. It was, you can imagine a, uh, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, Homo sapiens, or even, you know, a million years ago, Homo habilis or Homo erectus in tribes with spears or whatever, thinking, let's go get that water buffalo because we're hungry and a bunch of them are going to, you know, coalesce and hunt. And there were so many animals. I've never seen anything like it. It was truly humbling. And after that, we went to Lake Iasi, which is where the Hadza live. So this is the, the ancestral land of the Hadza tribe. They've been in Africa for, they don't even know how long. Their history is fascinating. But evolutionarily, it's believed that Homo sapiens arose 250 to 350,000 years ago, and then left Africa 60 to 70,000 years ago. And many anthropologists believe the Hadza are some of the direct descendants of the original Homo sapiens who remained in this area, this Rift Valley in Africa. So we were in an area called Lake Iasi. And um, as I talk about this, it's, the context is very important because the land that the Hadza hunt in has just become compressed and compressed and compressed. And this affects the way they can hunt, but it was really humbling. So I'll just pause there and see if you have any questions. So now I'm arriving at the Hadza, but I wanted to give all that context for the region, this, the reason this area in Africa is so special. No, it's a fascinating story to listen to. So go on. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I would recommend that, that anyone go there if they want to see this. And so we, to get to the Hadza, to get to Lake Yasi, we drive hours from Arusha, and then we drive 40 minutes on a dirt road. And then the dirt road gets really bumpy We're in these four wheel drive vehicles. And we arrive just we just park and there's nobody there and then we start walking through the african bush and one of our guides calls out to them and they 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 speak a language called hadzabe or hadzane and they call out to them you know like mtanabawa and which just means hello for, hello men you know and then they call back and they all come out of the bush and it's it's the craziest thing joe it's like i have literally stepped out of a time machine there were 15 men or 20 men that came out to greet us they're wearing animal skins for shirts. They do have shorts on that are very tattered and, and dirty, but they're most of them, some of them are barefoot. Some of them are wearing basic sandals. They're all carrying their bows, which they've made themselves in, in the environment they're in. 
and they they're wearing animal skins for hats and and you know as as shirts and it was incredible and they just they greet us they're very friendly they bring us to their camp and they show us around and then began sort of the immersion and i i will release a video of this to my youtube but we sat down with them that first night and asked them all sorts of questions and then we got to go hunting with them the next day for baboons and i'll tell that story in a moment but we sit down with them around the fire and we begin asking them questions through a translator and one of the most important some of the most important questions i wanted to ask them were what foods do you like the most what do you prefer and they didn't say honey like that article would suggest they said eland baboons and bush pig which are the main sources of game that they like to hunt so the first off the bat i learned something that they didn't say vegetables <laughs> they didn't say we like the leaves off this tree or we like the fruit off that tree they said we like meat meat and organs and the, our favorite food is the eland and that's because it's the biggest game and we can talk about how they hunt it because it's fascinating. Well, what, what is an eland specifically? Is it oh, it's a very large antelope. Let me see if I can pull up a picture so you guys can see. But it's, it's a very large um, sort of antelope. I may not actually be. Um, yeah, it's an eland antelope. So I'll pull up a picture here. And they are, they are quite large. They can weigh up to, um, they can weigh up to a thousand pounds or more. And so they are, they are essentially prime, prime game for the Hadza. So this is an eland. Oh, and boy. The scale there is a little hard to see, but mm -hmm. that's essentially an antelope the size of a cow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's a, that's a cow plus an antelope. And so you can imagine that a group of hunter-gatherers gets that and they can feed the whole tribe for a few days. Yeah, yeah. So they say, meat is our favorite food, bar none. And then I said, okay, what is the best day of your life? What do you guys think about? What makes, what makes the best day of your life? And they Great say questions. the day, yeah, they say the day that we hunt and kill the biggest animal and bring it back to camp for everyone to share. And then we can all dance and sing and celebrate because we have a big animal. They didn't say the best day of my life is the day that I gathered a hundred tubers or that I found the bush with all the berries, right? Or that I found a whole bunch of leaves in the, in the bush that I could eat. They say that the best day of my life is the day that I have the biggest kill and I bring it back to my family and the tribe. And then we say, I said, what do you dream about? What do you dream about? And I bet you can guess, they said, we dream about hunting. <laughs> we think about hunting like all the time. We dream about hunting. We dream about, you know, stalking animals and hunting. And then my friend, Anthony Gustin, who came with me to Africa, asked what I thought was an amazing question, which was, why do you choose to live this life? Because as I hinted at, the hunting lands of the Hadza have been compressed. They're, they're being encroached upon by other tribes who are pastoralists, tribes that have chosen to become farmers and, you know, keep herds of cattle and goats. And so you can imagine that wild animals are not going to want to, to, to have their hunting, their, their grazing lands when there's a farmer here with a bunch of cows and goats. And so their lands are being compressed and compressed. And they've clearly seen this. I mean, quote unquote, tourists come to visit them from time to time. And we can talk about the impacts of ecotourism on the Hadza. It's actually probably good for their preservation. But why, why don't you guys choose to go live in the city? It's not like they don't know that these things exist. We were showing them photos of the animals we had seen um, in, in Goro and Goro Crater on our phones. And, and they were really fascinated by the rhino. And they said, oh, that one's really dangerous. Be careful with the rhinoceros. 
And, and they said, we, we want to be free. We like to eat meat. We want to be able to hunt. And we like this lifestyle. So they are choosing to remain in this lifestyle because it gives them freedom. And that, I think, is a segue to an amazing question that was asked by one of Anthony's followers that we can talk about, which is, why, how do the Hadza stay happy? And the, 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 the sort of the glib answer is, they don't even need to stay happy. That is their state of mind. That is their default mode when they are in nature doing what humans have always done. And so this is so interesting to me that here's this group of hunter-gatherers. They live in the bush. They do not sleep on beds. They sleep on the ground in these sort of thatched huts that they build in a day. They're nomadic. They have little camps. They have fires for men and fires for the women. They live under rock shelters. They sleep, you know, in the, in the auspices of rocks. And they are profoundly healthy individuals. They love their life because every day they get to get up and go play. And for them, play and fun is hunting. And the next day we got to see it because we got to go on a hunt with them. And it was, it was incredible. It was so joyous and so simple. And I'll just tell this other story that I thought was fascinating. So I don't know if it was one of the Hadza, but um, in his book, uh, Civilized to Death, Christopher Ryan tells this story of a hunter-gatherer, maybe it was one of the Ikung, who was brought to <clears throat> London, I believe. They had filmed him and they brought him to London and they got, he got to see their life. And after a few days, he asked them, why do you leave every day from your family and go somewhere away from them and come back at the end of the day? Why do you do this? And what are you doing there? And they said, well, we have to make, we have to go to work to make money to pay for this shelter we have. And he said, why would you do that? And why would you spend all of your time away from people that you care about? And I thought that was so interesting to see this perspective. This is the reason that we go to visit these tribes, right, Joe? Because the Hadza don't have to do that. They basically get up, they're camping every day. They get up in a beautiful spot. They have a campfire. They sit around with their friends and they say, let's go hunting. And they walk right out their front door and start hunting. And they're immediately well, engaged quick, quick as question. humans. Because it, it, it uh, confuses me a little bit. So they, are you suggesting that they're traveling with their entire community or is it not just the hunters that go out and search of food? So the whole community moves around. Is that, is that what's happening? The whole community moves around throughout the year. So at certain times of the year, depending on the wet season versus dry season, the whole camp of Hadza, the camp that we went to was about 40 to 50 men and women with children. Mm -hmm. And they move the camp three or four times a year. They have three or four camps that they've established mm -hmm. and they know spots in the Lake Yasi region. Some of them are better for the rainy season. Some mm -hmm. of them are better for the dry season. And so the whole camp will move throughout the year to different times. So we were at a camp where, and this is so interesting. We heard the backstory when we got there. No one really knows where they are, right? So before we arrived in Africa, our guides had to go out into the bush and find them and say, <laughs> where are they? You know, they have this idea, but they had to figure out like, where are they right now? Are they, at, are they at this camp or that camp? Which camp are they at? So we arrived at a camp where there was a lot of rock outcroppings. And I think that they prefer this camp because we were getting toward the rainy season. It wasn't quite the rainy season, but it was raining uh, occasionally when we were there. And so they liked the rock outcroppings because it provides them a lot of shelter from the rain. So they use this camp in the rainy season. It's also higher up. They had an, an old camp that we saw at the, on the shores of Lake Yossi, but they can't go there in the rainy season because Lake Yossi is too high. But in the dry season, they can go there. And that camp is actually right where 
many of the plants they use, it's called the elephant put plant. They use this plant to make poisonous arrows, mm. make poison out of the arrows. So this is getting to be more Indiana Jones stuff. So I'll tell that story in a moment. But on the second morning, we get up at 4.45 in the morning and we're at the Hadza camp, essentially before it's light out. They're already sitting around the fire and we kind of wait until it's just light out. And the, the chief gets up and he says, all right, let's go. And we're going hunting. All right. And they, it was incredible. They took off out of camp show. They didn't run, but it was a brisk walking pace. And, you know, I'm there with Anthony and the guide and we've got our backpacks and we're like, we have no idea what's going to happen. It was so, it was just so joyous to be with these people who were so, um, so comfortable in their environment. And for, for them, food was everywhere. And they, this is their grocery store. Their grocery store is multiple kilometers of land and they can just do whatever they want. And so we'd be walking along at this brisk pace. And then one of them would be like, stop, stop. And they would see a dove in a tree, which they call a kukuru. And they would, they would literally try and shoot the bird with an arrow made from wood, with a bow made from wood. And they were, a couple of them are successful. I saw them probably take 20 shots and they got two birds. But even so, they're shooting a self-hewn bow and arrow at a bird the size of, you know, like a very small chicken in a tree 30 yards away. Their mm. accuracy with these bows is incredible. And they put corn on the end of their, they put a corn cob or something on the, or a blunt end on the arrow so that when it hits the bird, it doesn't pass through the bird. It just stuns the bird. The bird falls out of the tree and they go over and kill it. So we saw them shoot the birds out of the trees as we're hunting and we're moving around. And we walked a long way, Joe. We, that day, we ended up walking 15 plus miles. Wow. At one point, they found a small monkey in a tree that they shot and brought down. And then after about seven or eight, maybe seven miles, we ended up at this place where the baboons live. And we got there and they said, ah, oh, be very quiet. We're, we're going to stalk the baboons. And so we're, hunt, we're, we're walking around. And then all of a sudden, we, we hunted with dogs. So the Hadza keep dogs for their hunting. And then all of a sudden, the dogs take off. And it was like nothing I've ever seen, Joe. The Hadza men started sprinting and we couldn't even keep up. They were sprinting over the, over the hills and yelling at each other and trying to corner a baboon. And eventually they got a baboon. Now, to, I think to a Western audience, this might sound uh, cr cr you know, cruel or, or barbaric, but this is their life and death. This is, this, is, this is really the difference between survival and sustenance for them or starvation. And so they're, they're, they understand how, how important eating these foods are, but they were able to get a baboon. We saw the baboon killed, and then they, they immediately make a fire and burn off the hair. And then this was the really cool thing. So they ate the organs of the animal in the field. So they, they immediately take the baboon, they put it on the fire to burn the hair off, and then they, they gut it. They open the intestines up, they give the intestines to the dogs, um, the sort of the, the bowels with the poop in them and everything else they take for themselves. They do not waste anything. And immediately the heart and the liver and the lungs and the spleen and the kidneys came out. And they were, these were the most precious foods. In Hadza culture, they're called epeme, E-P-E-M-E. -E. And they're meant there, there's lore. There's really story around this. You must share them with the, the men from the tribe. If you do not, bad things will happen to you. So I thought it was so interesting that they they, as I suspected, they treasure the organs above all things. It was so cool. So they, they, they make a fire and they immediately put all the organs on the fire. And then it was very humbling because they offered it to us. So I got to eat baboon liver 
and Baboon Kidney with the Hadza in the field. Wow. And as I've spoken about before in my work, there are unique nutrients in these organs and they understand this and they probably don't understand nutrients, but I think they understand that if you eat these organs, you are more vital. And that's why I think it's so important for humans to get back to eating nose to tail, eating these organs. But I'll tell you, it was an incredible experience to eat baboon liver that we had freshly hunted after we've walked seven miles and run a bunch of times with the Hadza. And it was just, it was so impactful for me. And then, you know, I'll continue the rest of the hunt, the story, but you have any questions so far? Yeah, Anything I got one question. I'm just curious as to how frequently they repeat this process. Is it something they do every day? Is it a few times a week? I mean, how, how much food that they typically acquire and then they have to go about it again? They, they generally will hunt as much as they need to. And so this goes back to what I was saying before. One of the other questions I asked them the first night I got there was, are there different animals now for you to hunt? And is hunting harder than it has been for you in the past? And they, they answered yes to both of those. So they told us stories of, you know, even in the last 15 to 20 years, and they don't keep time records, but, you know, the, the guides had been visiting them for 15 years. So even in the last 15 to 20 years, the big game around their camps have become so much less prominent. And so they, they must go so much further to get smaller game because there are Datoga pastoralists and Maasai encroaching on their lands. Their lands are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So they are forced to hunt smaller and smaller animals. And this is why I fear they're going to vanish in a few generations. But the stories they tell us of the past are that they, they have been able, you know, within history or their ancestors would tell them they used to be able to walk 15 or 20 minutes out of camp and kill an eland. Kill a, you know, kill a thousand or 2000 pound animal right outside of camp. And in that case, if they can kill, if they can get that much meat, they're not going to hunt every day. They're going to hunt and then take a day off. And maybe actually they will go looking for berries or honey that next day. But generally speaking, the amount of meat they eat is proportional only to the success of their hunts. And so we saw them kill a baboon, but the baboon wasn't that big. And the baboon certainly wasn't enough meat for the camp. So this is another reason that I went Tanzania, because within the sort of anthropological medical literature, people will claim the Hadza are, quote, plant-based, which is absurd. <laughs> the only thing they care about, this is not, that's, that's hyperbole, but the thing they care about the most is meat and organs. And if in any way, shape, or form they're eating less meat, it's just because they can't get as much successful uh, meat harvesting in their hunting. And so that is that is the reason that they are eating more plants now because their lands are being limited and it's so hard for them to actually get the meat that they want. But they are, they are, you know, ideologically, they are nothing like plant-based. They are completely animal-based. They eat nose to tail all the time and they will not waste anything. So when we got the baboon back to camp, we, they ended up eating the whole thing and they would, they would eat small bones. So we got a small monkey called a galago or a bush baby, and they would eat the small bones of the baby, of the bush baby, the little small monkey called the galago, and they would break the bones for the marrow and suck the marrow. And they would eat every single piece of that animal. They would eat the collagen, the connective tissue. They would eat the skin. Of, and I mean, it, it sounds gross to our ears, but 
these are the things that I suspected and that I had read about. And I saw firsthand, they would eat the ears from the baboon and the whole, the cheek muscle. And these are all nutrient rich for them. And you and I both know that collagen, the collagenous tissues are going to have lots of glycine and different amino acids that allow the body to really make collagen and glutathione in our own bodies. And so they, they don't know this, but they understand we waste nothing. You know, the baboon hands are a little bit fattier. So they're going to eat that. And again, this is survival. They do so gratefully. But the next morning we got there and they were eating the baboon brain. And Joe, this was a really cool experience. And I've gotten a lot of pushback on social media. People say, can't you get a prion disease? And I, I said, no, there's no documented crossing of any prion diseases between baboons and humans. And even the monkeys to humans is just conjecture. There's never been a documented case of a prion disease moving from a monkey to a human or anything like this. And again, I'm in Africa with the Hadza. If I get a prion disease eating a baboon that I lived well, you know, I did, I did my own adventuring and it was worth it, but I ate baboon brains with the Hadza and that was incredible. And they were delicious. And believe me, the guy who killed the baboon was the guy who got to eat the brain. So he, so the hunter that actually made the kill was awarded some of the most valuable organs. And for us in, in Western society, this, so this was really what I wanted to understand about their food. And I can go into more detail about the food was they definitely eat nose to tail. That's something you and I have talked about previously on podcasts. Sure. Um, they ate the brain and we know there's all sorts of unique things in the brain. There are peptides, there are essential fatty acids, there are connective tissue molecules, and the brain is, is probably their favorite part. So the guys, the fact that he shared the brain with us was very, we felt very grateful that we got to eat baboon brain. <laughs> And, and a little bit of baboon cheek and part of the ear and the face and, you know, all of the organs of the baboon. And this is why, you know, many people might be listening to this going, I would never eat a baboon brain. And I understand that. <laughs> and then some people might not even eat cow's liver, which is were, why were I- Were these think, organs cooked? They were cooked. So okay. they did not eat anything raw, which was interesting to me. Okay. The, the baboon brain, they, they took the, the organs and they, they put them on the coals of the fire and they cooked them. And then they took the baboon head and put it over the fire and, and cooked it. But, you know, this is really, I think I, as, as I was talking about this with the carnivore diet and with animal-based diet, I understood that people would have this pushback. And my own family informed me about this. My mom would say, I can't eat liver. I can't eat heart. I can't eat kidney. And they're never going to eat brain. And yet there are unique nutrients in these things. And so this is essentially why I built Heart and Soil and we make these desiccated organs because I'm sure people are listening to this and thinking, I couldn't do this, right? Like I couldn't eat these organs. I can never be with the Hadza here. And so we can talk about this idea of a human zoo and how as Westerners, we're really separate from our ancestral environments. But it's so fascinating to me to think about how you and I can help people get back to this with baby steps. And so I think these mm -hmm. desiccated organs can be a little bit of a baby step. You don't have to eat a baboon brain, but you know, you can eat, you can eat grass fed, grass finished, regeneratively raised cow's liver and spleen and heart and pancreas in these desiccated organs. So that's just an aside that I think is interesting, but it was fascinating to me that they absolutely ate the organs nose to tail and man, they ate the brain, Joe. It was, I mean, yeah. that's, I'll never forget eating baboon brains in, in Tanzania. Yeah. It's definitely a story to share. <laughs> and so we, so that was incredible. And there, you know, we go on this hunt, we bring this baboon back and we got to see how they shared it amongst themselves. They're very egalitarian. They don't, 
They don't, you know, fight over the meat. They're very generous with us. And then they bring some of the meat to the women. A lot of people ask like, well, what's happening with the women? The women, there is a division of labor. The women would dig tubers and, and collect berries. And the men generally collect honey and do the hunting. And so yeah, it was quick, very clear. Quick, quick question. What are, the, what are the tubers specifically? What do they most closely resemble, resemble in our grocery store? Is it like potatoes, yams? Great question. So nothing like in our grocery store. And this was fascinating to me. So in that first paper I showed, and I can show it again, um, they actually you know, mentioned the names of the tubers that are eaten. And I got to see a number of these tubers and they are nothing. So they have these, this Matu Kawako, the penze, the penze Penze, this Shumawako I ate specifically, the Daiko Shakeako, right? And the Equa. And so these are the tubers they eat. And this was fascinating to me, Joe. So we go out of the camp with the women. On the, on the next day, we asked to go dig the tubers because I wanted to see this. And I posted a video uh, of this on my Instagram. And we, we end up in this sort of dry riverbed and they, they, they start digging with a stick. And there's a plant and they, they, they have a root and a tuber that, that comes out and then they pull it out and their hands are covered in dirt, right? And my hands are covered in dirt, which is, this is relevant. And, and then they show me how they eat this. They, they peel the skin off the tuber with their, with their teeth. And the tuber is about the, the thickness of my thumb mm. or a little thicker. So it's a thin, it's a thin tuber and it's long. And I put it in my mouth and I chew it and it was interesting it wasn't very sweet and it was kind of it was kind of watery and mild and then you realize something it was so fibrous you have to spit out all of the you can't possibly swallow this tuber so and this has been documented many times with the hadza and yet many people ignore this the hadza are constantly talked about as a high fiber diet but what we saw their diet was actually fairly low in fiber because they're eating meat and organs and honey and I can talk about the honey gathering. And even when they do eat tubers, they spit out the fiber. These are nothing like anything we have in the grocery store. You cannot eat the fiber. So basically you chew on the tuber to get a little bit of starch, perhaps a little bit of dextrose or some glucose polymer, a little bit of amylose, a little bit of water. And then you spit out the fiber because there's nothing left. And so, because you can't possibly chew it. It tastes like you're eating ropes or strings. You don't even eat this. And so that was fascinating to me that the Hadza diet, contrary to what has been talked about colloquially, is low fiber. And it perhaps at times it's moderate fiber, but it's very, it's not a high fiber diet at all. And the other thing I want to mention about eating the tubers was there was no bathroom there to wash my hands, nor did I want to, because I'm very interested in soil-based organisms and the interaction of our mm -hmm. microbiome with our environment. And so many times with the Hadza, there's such a fiber bias in Western research. And I'll show you some fascinating articles about this that were just published in Nature Immunology. There's such a fiber bias. Everyone believes that the Hadza have a, quote, healthy, diverse microbiome because they eat a high fiber diet. Well, number one, they don't eat a high fiber diet. Number two, they probably have a healthy, diverse microbiome because they live in nature and they are inevitably taking in inputs information from nature in the form of dirt and soil-based organisms. And this is something that I've always suspected. And it's a complete paradigm shift that, and as we know, I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, even in Western society and in interventional studies, adding fiber to the diet does not increase alpha diversity and removing fiber does not decrease alpha diversity. 
So what does increase alpha diversity? Well, living in nature increases alpha diversity, probably because you're eating dirt. And there was definitely dirt on my hands and my fingers and dirt on this tuber as I'm holding it in my mouth. And the Hadza are not a dirty people. When I was around them, and this is a fascinating nuance, they did not smell, Joe. They don't use deodorant. They don't have bad breath. I was really close to them a lot of the time in the bush hunting. Hmm. They don't have body odor. They don't smell. They're not a dirty do, people. They're very do they clean. Do they bathe? They bathe. They don't bathe that regularly. No, yeah. they, they basically, because it's Tanzania, they don't have a lot of water. So yeah, that's what I think. we were there for a week and we didn't, we, they didn't bathe. I imagine that occasionally they, they okay. go to a river and might bathe, but they didn't bathe regularly. It's really odd, especially in such a warm smell. environment. Yeah. So the, the, yeah. the biggest issue would be not so much, well, the body odor from, from the armpits, you know, the axillary bacteria that tend to accumulate, but it's pretty clear their microbiome and their, their environment doesn't encourage the growth of these odor, odoriferous producing bacteria. Exactly. It was, it was fascinating. I mean, it was a little bit of voyeurism, right? So yeah, yeah. I'm standing next to the Hadza and I'm kind of going, I'm kind of like smelling, does he smell? Does he have a, does he have a smell? And they didn't, I could never smell them, Joe, not their breath and wow. not their axillary That's impressive. odor. That's impressive. It was, yeah, it was really, really fascinating. And so I want to show a few things about the Hadza microbiome, which I found to be quite fascinating. Um, it's been studied repeatedly because of the diversity. So this is an article titled The Gut Microbiome of Hadza Hunter-Gatherers. And so these are, these are all articles I had read before I went. And in this article, which is, this is published in Nature Communications, they say, mm -hmm. we show that the Hadza have higher levels of microbial richness and biodiversity than Italian urban controls. Fascinating. Further comparisons with two rural farming African groups illustrate other features unique to the Hadza that can be linked to a foraging lifestyle. These include the absence of bifidobacterium and mm. differences in microbial composition between the sexes that probably reflect the sexual division of labor. There's enrichment in Prevotella, Treponema, unclassified bacteroidetes, as well as a peculiar arrangement of the Clostridialis taxa. So high level, what they're saying here is that this one bacteria that we think of, because we get very myopic with our conceptualization of the human gut, and we think, oh, you need bifidobacteria. The Hadza don't even have bifidobacteria in their gut. And they have a very high microbial richness. Some of the higher you know, alpha diversity levels that have ever been measured. And this is fascinating. And as I said, many people will attribute this to their high fiber quote diets. But what I observed was in fact that they do not eat high fiber diets at all. And how fascinating is that? And I would postulate that it has nothing to do with the amount of fiber in their diet. In fact, in the cities, people probably ate more fiber, but it probably has to do with their environment, the dirt they're exposed to, all of these other things. I just want to show this article as well, which is fascinating. So this is an interventional study in humans that was recently published. The title is Gut Microbiota Targeted Diets Modulate Human Immune Status. And as you can see here, this is a 17-week randomized prospective study design mm -hmm. in humans with omics measurements of the microbiome. And what they found was that um, they did not have any change in the alpha diversity of the diet with more fiber. So this is an, a really good study looking at the microbiota using omics, which is like high level sequencing so they could tell. And 
it did not change anything. Three distinct immunological trajectories in high fiber consumers corresponded to baseline microbiota diversity. Alternatively, high fermented food diets steadily increased microbiota diversity and decreased inflammatory markers. So what they're saying is there was no change in alpha diversity with fiber, but when the people were eating fermented food, or we could call this rotting food or something, there was a change in the alpha diversity. And when they looked at the actual um, organisms that were representing the increase in alpha diversity, it was not the organisms in the fermented food. So again, it just, to me, it speaks to its environment, or we can make use this paper as an argument for some sort of fermented food in our diet, whether it's high liver, like fermented organs or rotting meat or kefir, you know, depending whether you tolerate water or dairy kefir. But I think that when humans are exposed to soil-based organisms and live in a natural environment like this, that is what creates alpha diversity that is high. And I think that's what creates the microbial richness that we really should seek uh, if we're looking to be healthy humans or we want a healthy gut microbiome rather than, than trying to just put a whole bunch of fiber in our guts, which causes problems for some people. So you and I have talked about this a little bit, and I think there are definitely some people who can tolerate fiber, but for a lot of people, fiber is not a panacea and it makes their gut issues much much worse. So that was really interesting because even Justin Sonnenberg, who is a well-known researcher at Stanford, has published a paper, which I can pull up on the shifting populations of the Hadza microbiome seasonally. And in the paper, he says the Hadza eat a high fiber diet with over hundred grams of fiber per day. And again, the caveat here is that I visited with them for one week in February. I didn't get to see them for a full year, but talking to them and talking to the guides, the diet we saw them eat is not different, significantly different multiple times of the year in terms of fiber consumption. Yeah. They were a low fiber diet. It's fascinating. Yeah. It is. It was interesting because I purchased a book in the eighties from Dennis Burkett, who was a physician and African missionary, I believe, who really, I believe is responsible for promulgating that hypothesis. And you know, on his observations in the African community. So he, he came to different conclusions than you did. Yes, it's very, um, I wrote about Dennis Burkett in, in the carnivore code. And um, the story that I've heard is that he, I believe he was a gastroenterologist or a surgeon. And he, he was fascinated by diverticulosis, which is this outpouching of the mucosal layer of the stomach through the muscular layer. And he, he was wondering, why is this happening? And he went to Africa and in these pastoralist communities that he observed, people were eating a lot of fiber. So he was not studying hunter-gatherers, he was studying pastoralists, people eating ugali, corn, they had ground themselves and grains, and, and they had a lot of fiber and they had voluminous bowel movements and they didn't have any, they didn't have any diverticulosis. So this is the problem with medical research. We observe something and we see a correlation and we want to infer causality, but we can't do that because there are a lot of potential problems here. So he sort of inferred causality there and said fiber is what prevents diverticulosis. And we now know that to be completely false. And there are many studies, um, and I could pull one up. I believe we've talked about this one in the past, the 2012 study from the World Journal of Gastroenterology, looking at a 2,000-person case series of colonoscopy and correlating that to fiber consumption. And in that study by Quartile, the people who ate the most fiber had the most diverticulosis. And again, it's just a correlation based on uh, surveys and observed 
colonoscopies, but that correlation is completely different than what Dennis Burkett was suggesting. My yeah. hypothesis is that diverticulosis, which is again, this outpouching of these sort of diverticuli, these mini appendices in the gut, especially the colon, is an autoimmune illness. And as you know, I believe a lot of autoimmunity is driven by uh, sort of Western dietary patterns, which are rich in seed oils. And we can talk about this as well and other problems. So yeah, yeah Dennis Burkett is, uh, I think, responsible for the fiber hype and has contributed yeah. toward much misunderstanding. On a similar uh, perspectives, one could argue that your observations are also uh, correlational and the happiness and the enjoyment or the, uh, the freedom from these chronic degenerative diseases may not be related to the food they're eating, but it could be the environment or the grounding or other variables that uh, you witnessed and, and uh, really maybe neglected to account for. But it's, obviously it's the whole picture. Something they're doing is working. That can't be discounted. Exactly. And that's a great point and well taken that, that this type of adventure research is, is completely observational, but based on all the things that you and I have done and researched, and there are clinical studies to at least corroborate the hypothesis that it, this is at least in part significantly due to their dietary patterns. But as you're suggesting, there are so many more things about what they do, which is valuable for us as humans. And we can talk about that as well. So I want to mention this paper, these, these two series of papers that were actually published while I was in Tanzania in Nature Immunology, and it, it's relevant to this point we're making. So this is a paper looking at urban living um, in Tanzanians in a town called Moshi, which is at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro, and they found that their diet was associated with inflammatory status driven by dietary and metabolic changes, and I thought this was fascinating when they compared them to more rural Tanzanians. So this study aimed to investigate and integrate the immune and metabolic consequences of rural or urban lifestyles and the role of nutritional changes associated with urban living. So they compared urban living Tanzanians in Moshi to rural living Tanzanians. And what they found was that serum from urban dwellers induced reprogramming of innate immune cells with higher tumor necrosis factor, which is TNF alpha production upon microbial restimulation than an in vitro model of trained immunity. So they found that people living an urban lifestyle, and we can start to, again, connect the dots here and say, well, what is it about the urban lifestyle that made them more prone to inflammation versus a rural lifestyle? And I have my own suggestions and we can talk about this, but as you'll see here, there's a companion paper that was published in Nature where the authors editorialize and draw their own conclusions, which I would disagree with. So this is the, this is the companion paper a fiber poor Western diet fuels inflammation. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I observed this firsthand. And if you see here, what they say is that, um, what they're trying to say is that the, the urban people in Tanzania are eating more of the dreaded saturated fat and less fiber. And that is what fuels their, their, their inflammatory phenotype. And what I observed was completely different than that. In fact, when you go into a grocery store in urban Tanzania, there are two aisles, there's two sort of shelves of oil. And one of them is a huge shelf of vegetable oil. They call it flower oil and safflower oil. And many of the vegetable oils that we saw were actually expired and they're in plastic. And right next to that, 
Right next to that is a whole shelf of beef fat, of beef tallow. And the beef tallow is actually cheaper than the vegetable oil. But what do people buy in the cities? They buy seed oils. And so my observation is that in the urban cities, people are probably eating more seed oils and less saturated fat than the rural settings. In speaking to our guide in Tanzania, which is fascinating, he told us the craziest story, Joe. He, he said that he went to his doctor in Tanzania and his doctor told him that he needed to stop eating red meat because red meat causes diabetes and encouraged him to eat seed oils. <laughs> oh my gosh. And we said, Gasper, that's completely wrong. And we were able to help him understand and say, Gasper, do the Hadza eat animal meat and fat? And he said, yes. And I said, do the Hadza look like they have diabetes? And he said, no, your doctor is completely wrong, Gasper. He's 20 years old. He's 20 years sort of antiquated in his thinking. His thinking is outdated. His thinking is antique based on sort of the epidemiology that has been promulgated in the Western world and has now made itself to uh, Tanzanian medical education. And so I would debate, it's incredible that in this nature immunology paper, they're editorializing and trying to claim that it's a fiber poor Western diet that contributes to inflammation. I think it's the seed oils and processed refined sugars that are clearly doing that. And I would, I would posit that it has nothing to do with how much fiber you eat. As I said earlier, some people can tolerate fiber but for a lot of people, it makes it much worse. And as I've shown, and as I've talked about in multiple podcasts that I've done on my podcast, which is called Fundamental Health, adding more fiber to your diet doesn't improve the alpha diversity of your microbiome. And I've even tested my microbiome on zero fiber diets consisting of meat, organs, and honey, in some ways trying to mimic a Hadza diet. And my alpha diversity was very high. It was 94.6 was the score at you know, um, the gut biome from longevity. So I just want to push back about against all of this sort of group think around inflammation and fiber poor Western diets, because what we saw was the complete opposite that a fiber poor Hadza diet was very, at least associated with extremely good health and vitality. Like I said, these guys didn't smell, they had good skin. There's no evidence of chronic disease. And they were vital, Joe, they were vital. And so I'll just tell this story and then we can talk about some of the other things the Hadza do. The aged in, in Hadza, in, in Lake Iasi were fascinating. People ask, how long do the Hadza live? And I spoke about this again with James Clement. I wanna really help your listeners understand this. When hunter-gatherer estimations of lifespan are quoted, they are invariably invariably skewed by higher rates of infant and childhood mortality. And those are not accurate because when you live in the wild, when you are a free living human and you have a baby in the wild or you have babies running around camp, there are higher rates of infant mortality. In fact, if we look at other free living species other than Homo sapiens, higher rates of infant mortality are kind of normal. And perhaps for Homo sapiens, it is normal for you know, not all of our offspring to survive to adulthood. But if we look at the lifespan or the health span of humans in Hadza culture from adulthood on, they live just as long as us. And like we talked about earlier, they have squaring of the morbidity curve. They are much more vital than us long into old age. Again, we don't know how old they are. They don't really keep records. But there, was a, there, was a, there were a number of Hadza men that I traveled with, that I hunted with, who looked to be in their 60s or perhaps even older, who were vital and running around with guys who looked to be in their 20s. They were on the hunts, and they were some of the most 
senior experienced hunters. I want to talk about honey because we went gathering bush honey. And this is some of the most amazing stuff you'll ever have in your life. I hope I can get you back to Africa with me and we'll get you some bush honey out of a tree. But they find these, <laughs> they find these stingless bees. They're, they're sweat bees that have evolved in Africa that make their hives in the baobab tree. And they're so ingenious, these bees. They burrow into the tree. There's no visible hive because humans have been sort of gathering the honey for so long. And so there's this little tiny, essentially, straw that moves out to the bark. And when the Hadza see this, they know that's where the honey is hiding. So they take their axe and they chop into the tree and they got to do this. There's a video of this on my Instagram. Uh, I might be able to bring it up for the, I can probably bring it up here uh, so people can see it on the video. But I got to chop into the tree with them. And then you get all of these stingless bees come out. They kind of try and fly in your eyes. And then you get some of the most dark, amazing honey I've ever had in my life. And there's pollen and wax and larva. And it was so good. It was, it was like floral. It was the most rich honey I've ever had. And then we went looking for more of this. And they climbed the baobab tree, which is a very wide base tree that goes up you know, over 100 feet. And who goes up the tree first? The 60-year-old guy is off in the bush cutting down these plant limbs that he's making into spikes that he's hammering into the tree. And he literally Spider-Man's up this tree. And before I know it, he's 35 feet in the air up this tree looking for more honey. It was incredible. This 60-year-old guy, the agility, the flexibility, the mobility of a child up in the tree, he's the first one up there just running around and looking for more honey. But so that story talks about honey and the the vitality of their elders. It's really quite remarkable. Yes, indeed. The squaring of the morbidity curve, which is uh, really <clears throat> a goal that uh, most of us would seek to, to, uh, to, to uh, attain for sure. Yes, yes. And so since I mentioned honey, I'll talk a little bit about this because, <clears throat> you know, as, as Westerners, we think about honey and within a lot of the ketogenic communities, people do not like honey. And they say honey is the same as sugar. And I've always kind of wondered about that. People may know that I've incorporated some honey back into my diet recently and found yeah. that having, having that- I got, I got you some of our biodynamic honey too. It was the, some that. of the best honey I've ever had in my life, Joe. The it, only honey that was better than that was the honey I ate in Tanzania with the Hadza. <laughs> <laughs> it was that, but that was really good honey. And so I wanted to think more about this and think, is honey really the same as sugar? So I went down this rabbit hole recently. One of the things I do on my podcast is I do a Friday thing called Controversial Thoughts. And I did a recent Controversial Thoughts podcast about honey. And in some of my research, what I found was that honey actually contains, now this is raw honey, you can't mm -hmm. eat it, yeah. contains nitric oxide metabolites. How cool is that? Yeah, very. So, so I'll show a couple papers here. So they can, uh, the presupposition is they're converted back to nitric oxide? Yes, and honey actually improves endothelial function. Of course. So this is one paper from 2003, the identification of nitric oxide metabolites in various honeys. And they actually did intravenous honey on intravenous. sheep. Intravenous honey on sheep. And it looked at the effect on plasma and urinary nitric oxide metabolite concentrations. How, cool How would they this? do that? Because I mean, geez, it's so thick. I mean, and they must and dilute it, it, you know? Darn. They must dilute it. Yeah. yeah. And you can imagine, you know, in the hospital, we'll give people a dextrose solution. So we'll yeah. give them IV sugar, but it was fascinating. And they found that intravenous infusion increased plasma and urinary nitric oxide metabolites. 
after heating nitric oxide metabolites decreased in all of the kinds of honey. And mm. so this is a deep rabbit hole that I've been down, but it really helped me understand a, a number of things. And then there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of other research, even in humans to corroborate this idea, honey increased saliva, plasma, and urine content of total nitrite concentrations in normal individuals. So honey increases nitric oxide in humans. And then there's interventional studies that show that honey performs differently in both humans and animal models relative to sucrose, which we would sort of expect. But I think within ketogenic circles where people get very dogmatic about carbohydrates, honey is often reductionist in with reductionist thinking, you know, thought to be the same as, as sucrose because honey does contain glucose and fructose, which is the disaccharide of sucrose. And, and, but it's fascinating to me that these whole foods, and again, this is not, this is not totally crazy to suggest this, these whole foods are an informational package that our body perceives differently than a processed sucrose, high fructose corn syrup. And actually in these studies, honey performed differently than sucrose, honey performed differently than dextrose, which is not surprising because dextrose is a glucose polymer. Sucrose is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose and fructose and sucrose, uh, glucose are handled differently by the liver and our physiology. But how interesting that honey appears to be good for humans potentially because of these nitric oxide metabolites and other things. So there's a whole rabbit hole here. I'm sure you've talked about the importance of nitric oxide. I had Malcolm Kendrick on my podcast. We talked about the way that nitric oxide is made by endothelial nitric oxide synthase and how critical that is for endothelial health. These are the cells that line all of the blood vessels of our body. And if those endothelial cells don't have nitric oxide, they can't, they can't expand properly. And so how interesting that, that honey contains these foundational things for humans and it's probably very valuable for us. And that first paper I showed suggested that the darker honey had more nitric oxide. And I can tell you the honey I ate in Tanzania was some of the most iridescent, dark, richly colored honey I've ever had in my life. So I just want to make this point that reductionist thinking in nutrition doesn't serve us. And I would posit that honey is nothing like sucrose. And if, if your listeners or anyone wants to include honey in their diet and you are metabolically healthy. That's the key. Yes. That is the key. You can't, you you could, can't you could integrate so. it into a conventional standard American diet and expect this like as a magic bullet that's going to provide health benefits. It won't. No, it will not. And um, and I, you know, I've, I've, you know, been very careful about communicating this to people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have been, but some, you know, nevertheless, some people get confused. So we just important to emphasize that. Exactly. So if you have diabetes, sugar, processed sugar, well, <laughs> honey, not a good thing. If you have diabetes, you know, reduce your carbohydrates until you, until your diabetes is fixed, but make sure you get rid of the seed oils also. Or, or, um, or metabolic inflexibility, which you brought to everyone's attention, which is 90% of the population. Yes. Metabolic dysfunction is so rampant in the population. Um, so that, so honey is not a panacea, but I just think, you know, I've moved in keto and carnivore circles and there are a lot of people who are metabolically no, healthy, I, like, yeah. like you and I, and I don't want people to be dogmatic and think, oh, I can't include some honey or they see me eating honey with the Hadza and I get questions like, are you afraid of getting kicked out of ketosis? And I say, no, <laughs> no, I'm in Africa with the Hadza. This is valuable food oh, for humans, you know? A little bit if of I, knowledge is dangerous. <laughs> yes, a little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous. So 
So I'll mention a few other things that I, I like I said, I spent a week with the Hadza. I, I got to hunt for berries with them and dig tubers with the women. And we drank the water out of the baobab tree where it had collected. And I got to see all these parts of their life. Um, they are always in nature. They're always in the sun. They're always having low level activity with sprinting. They follow circadian rhythms of the sun, which was one of the most joyous things, Joe. And one of the reasons I came to Costa Rica as I was returning to the States and there was this horrible storm in Austin was I thought, I want to do my experiment. How can I live a little bit more like the Hadza? How can I be more in nature? And so here in Costa Rica, you know, I basically live in the jungle. I'm, at, I'm in Santa Teresa at the beach. I'm in the ocean every morning. I get to watch all the sunsets and sunrises. And this has been a real mm-hmm. gift. Uh, I can be in the, the jungle and the, the nature a little more, but I think this is another takeaway for people to realize. And it's, it's been self-evident. I, I know you've talked about it and I'm following in your footsteps as you're taking your beach walks in the ocean. Mm-hmm. I'm getting in the ocean every day, twice a day to surf yeah. and ground. And this is what humans need. And I touched on this a little bit earlier with what I thought was a very insightful question from one of Anthony's fans, which was, what do the Hadza do to stay happy? And as I said, the Hadza's default state is happiness. And I really believe for humans, if we can understand what our ancestral diet is, what, are, what is the appropriate human diet? Yeah. What is an appropriate human lifestyle? Our default state will also be happiness and we will be vital individuals. And again, this is the reason I went back, I went to Tanzania to really take the time machine and say, how do the ancestral humans live? They're not a perfect representation. There are, they've, been, they've been changed by human contact for sure. And I can talk about that. But in some ways, they are the best window we have to our past. And they're doing the things that you are talking about. They're grounding. They're getting morning sunlight. They don't have any blue light at night because they have no devices. And pretty minimal exposure to to, uh, EMFs. There are (laughs) none. (laughs) Well, there's probably some. We've got radio towers and satellite emissions, but it's minimal for sure. Well within the healthy biologic range. Yes. So... um, we could go on for hours. We literally could, and we should, but unfortunately I have some time restrictions. So, (laughs) Uh, but but I want to say that I'm so impressed with your commitment, your dedication. I thoroughly enjoyed your interview with Anthony, your traveling partner to Africa and encourage people to watch that because from my perspective, the take home message from that dialogue and communication was this happiness that just engaging in these behaviors and uh, the lifestyle and the, the food choices just caused this intrinsic joyness that permeated their entire life. They didn't have to struggle. They didn't have to take drugs to, to treat depression. They didn't have to take drugs, period, because they did, virtually had no diseases. So it, it, it is just, it, it was somewhat surprising. I was a little bit stunned that I, that I didn't understand it previously, but it's just intrinsic happiness that resulted spontaneously from engaging in these behaviors. And when you think about it, it's, it's not surprising at all, but it, 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 it just typically something you don't think about. So uh, yeah, great, great work in exposing those of us who are not in those behaviors <laughs> to, to this pretty uh, uh, amazing observations. So uh, I love it. And you're, uh, you're, well, so why don't you tell us where we can find these podcasts, your book, more about your book, where they can follow you on Instagram and Facebook or whatever social media you're on. Yeah. So the best place to find sort of 
all of the work that I'm doing to bring these concepts to people is at heartandsoil.co. It's kind of my... Dot co, my, not dot com. Dot yes, co. Dot, dot co, dot co, not dot com. It's my baby. It's my sort of conduit where I'm trying to talk about all these things. My blog is there. All of my podcasts are there. You can get the desiccated organ supplements there, which will give you more nutrients. And I try and create all of my content around that. You can find links to all my social media there, but I'm at carnivore MD on Instagram. And my podcast is called Fundamental Health. And so I, I love that, that summary, Joe. You really tied it in a bow for the listener. So thank you for that because it really was this, this sort of radiant, jubilant happiness that they had. Mm -hmm. And it was so simple. It was yeah. just them getting uh, back to doing yeah. the things that humans need to do. Yeah. Eating the way that I believe humans should eat living the way humans should eat. And, you know, the, I, I did a second part podcast with Anthony and we just, and I touched on this a little bit in the podcast and I'll say this and then we can wrap up that, that I just fear that, that in Western society, humans have been placed into a little bit of a zoo. We've been given these hamster wheels to run on, which are essentially treadmills at gyms. <laughs> and, you know, we've been given this processed synthetic food, these pellets, these rat pellets that are dropped into our cage every once in a while. And it's no wonder that we're just not happy. And you know what? I'm not a zoologist, but I have heard that when animals are placed into cages in the zoo, they become fat and unhealthy and they develop chronic diseases that they don't get in the wild. And I've always found that to be a fascinating parallel with humans because I think we're exactly the same. The difference for us is that the door to the cage is open. Mm -hmm. We have only to open the latch and walk through we can get back to these things. There's no one keeping us in the zoo like we do with gorillas. I mean, it's a little bit sad, but a lot of the, these animals are preserved in this habitat for humans. But you're not locked into a zoo. It's a zoo, it's not a prison, but the door to the zoo is open. And that's why I went to Africa. And that's why you and I both do the work that we do is giving people the, just the, the, the empowerment to say, hey, you can walk through that door. You can get more sunlight. You can avoid blue light devices. You can avoid EMFs. You can eat the diet your ancestors ate and walk out of the zoo mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and find and find a richer life that you have a birthright to outside of the zoo. And that's why, you know, I think eating organs and desiccated organs is important and getting in the sunlight and surfing and playing and getting back to this fundamental happiness, which I believe is the default state for all humans. But remember, the door is open. You've just got to walk through it. Great, great summary. And just, I just want to add an additional point. I just finished James D. Nicolatonio's new book, The Mineral Fix, and uh, which is probably the most comprehensive textbook on the, on the topic of minerals. Uh, literally more than half of the book, 5,000 references is, is references. And it, it's the message, the, the big take-home message I got reading the book is that the most concentrated nutrient-dense form of minerals is, is liver or organ meats, you know, there's nothing that beats it. It is your ultimate mineral supplement. So, I mean, just further confirmation, but I loved your summary. That is such an empowering message that we all need to integrate into our lifestyle. So thank you for compiling this, for going out there, doing the hard work and uh, taking weeks out of your life to track the trails, Indiana Jones style and, and compile the information, share it with us and inspire us to greater health. Thank you, Joe, for giving me the platform to talk about it. It's an honor to get to do this work.